Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Russ Conser. Russ is the CEO of Blue Nest Beef, an e-commerce startup bringing 100% grass-fed beef from Audubon-certified bird-friendly land direct to consumer doorsteps nationwide. Theirs is a story of farmers and consumers co-creating a new and better food system that enhances the health of both people and planet. Russ is also the current president of the Grass-Fed Exchange. It's important to know that Russ was originally a mechanical engineer who spent 30 years at Shell and is now a regenerative agriculture entrepreneur and scientist. He retired from Shell in 2013 and has since been focused on the science and business of putting living carbon back into the shallow earth by working to scale up proven regenerative ag practices. As you might imagine, all those areas are right in our wheelhouse and we're excited to discuss them. So let's jump right in. Welcome to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm, I'm really blessed to be joined by Russ Concert today. Russ is uh, best known now today with uh, being associated with Blue Nest Beef and what they're up to. So I just like to take a moment, Russ, to welcome you and and share us your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're up to and, and how you got to this point. Yeah. Hey, Monty. Uh, thanks for having me on. I love your soundstage. I'm just looking at it going like Dirt is one of the books that got me started, actually. Yeah, me too. In this space, uh, David Montgomery is certainly one of the iconic uh, scientists that's done amazing work throughout this stuff. And um, but I, I, I grew up in farm country, but not as a farm kid. So I grew up in Nebraska, but as a city kid in Omaha, and I was a child of the, of the 1970s, the last time or one of the other times where gas prices were high and we were worried about running out. And, uh, the issue then wasn't anything broad about sustainability or climate change. It was just having enough to keep the lights on and, you know, drive down the freeway to grandma's house. So um, I chose to become an engineer. Um, and that led me to, um, after I gave up on some idyllic notions about other technologies being the future of energy, namely uh, nuclear. At the time, this was late 70s, uh, I realized that the next several decades of energy were going to be oil and gas. Um, and uh, so I spent 30 years at Shell um, and just a wonderful career, loved every minute of it, basically split half and half between uh, finding oil and gas all around the world what I would now call dead carbon uh, from the deep earth. Um, and then after a brief tour in um, corporate finance, ended up helping uh, start and lead uh, Shell's technology venturing uh, business and then moving a little bit further upstream into a early stage innovation program called Game Changer that inv invested in crazy energy technology ideas and, and and really enjoyed that. But after 30 years, I decided I was going to move on. And uh, my intent, honestly, was to work with renewable energy entrepreneurs and mentor and it, it advise. And on the way out the door, I heard this audacious and ridiculous claim about being able to sequester carbon in soil by changing how we farm. And I kept getting pulled into conversations about the science, because as it turns out, my very specific specialty in my early days of oil and gas was a type of petroleum engineer that would count uh, carbon in the deep earth, figure out how much there was and how much we could get out of the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and so people are talking about how do we measure carbon? How do we quantify this stuff? How much is there? What's the potential? All these kind of scientific questions. So I kept getting pulled into projects and discussions. And after a while, I started hanging out with uh, farmers doing regenerative agriculture. And I tell people that my world changed because I, I what I saw here in um, this would have been about 2013, 14, 15 kind of time range. Um, I've been gone from Shell for nine years now. Um, it was it reminded me very much of where the renewable energy was business was about 25 years ago when I first got into technology venturing um, in, in that there were like isolated pockets of really interesting things going on. 
but how do we, and the question then was, uh, you know, if we're going to actually reduce carbon emissions, how do we scale this kind of solar, wind, other technologies up to make them bigger? And it, it really struck me that the regenerative agriculture um, uh, thing was at the same stage now. It was like, you know, we know that the principles of regenerative agriculture, your other book on your shelf there, Dirt to Soil, is, of course, Gabe's famous story. That was my very first stop. Um, uh, movie producer by the name of Peter Bick that I'm sure you and your audience um, may know. I, I had been serendipitously introduced to Peter and Peter says, Russ, you need to come along to this thing called the Grassfed Exchange. It's a conference and they're going to be holding it in Bismarck, North Dakota, at Gabe Brown's farm. And he's this farmer that's doing interesting things. And um, so, so I came, I went to the Grassfed Exchange in 2013 um, uh, in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. And, and, to, to me, Gabe was, you know, an example of these uh, pioneering farmer of, of which there were others gathered there at that type of event. Um, you've been there trying to figure out just how to do this stuff and how to do it better and how to do it more. Um, and um, yeah, so the, the, the whole kind of where I am now is standard soil and blue nest beef is just, uh, you know, my entry into the game to try to figure out um, you know, how do we take these things that farmers like Gabe and many others know how to do and help them go big, if you will, how to, how to get bigger. Uh, Standard Soil was kind of a tongue-in-cheek name, right? Uh, you know, what would it look like to create a viable business um, that puts carbon back into the ground instead of sucking it out, which was, of course, my heritage. Um, and and yeah, to me, all these things, Balloonus Beef is... Uh, and we're working with the National Audubon Society to bring beef that's been produced under certification in their Audubon Conservation Ranching Program to American consumers nationwide, um, and 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 that's just kind of a means to an end, right? How do we how do we get more food products coming from regenerative lands to more consumers across America? So, a bit of a long intro, um, and and certainly serendipitous and unusual. Um, you know, it, it feels almost like full circle for what it's worth, you know, back to kind of the farm country roots, even though I left to go pursue energy long ago, I found out now that they're really one and the same. So that's the story anyway. Well, there you go. Uh, I think uh, Gabe Brown's farm has that effect. Uh, it's it's a well, pilgrimage worth making, you know, your Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem, wherever you want to call it. it it's yeah. the, the uh, uh, interesting experience. So you know, I, I had a similar thing. I'd heard him speak in 2016 at No-Till on the Plains and at National No-Till Conference. You know, sometimes it takes a fella a couple times to hear things and thought, yeah, well, I've heard people speak before and sometimes they're over-exaggerating a little bit. So yeah. I wanted to go and check it out for myself. So, you know, it's my my favorite story is I, I took my wife uh, to North Dakota for her birthday to look at <laughs> soil. So I, she, she just loved it, right? So we went and saw uh, Dr. Beck and then went on up to Gabe's and Sure enough, 12% uh, soil does look really re organic matter. 12% organic matter soil looks very, very amazing. Yeah, it's it's one of these things that's like, you know, watching the first airplanes fly. Once you've seen a plane fly, you can no longer accept the idea that planes can't fly. Or, you know, so so farmers like Gabe and Alan and, um, you know, Dave Brandt, you know, farmers across America, they're not in one, they're not just all hiding out in Bismarck, right? They're they're, they're all flying regenerative planes, if you will. Um, and then and the trick is, how do we build airlines out of this stuff? How do we uh, transform the American agriculture food system in a way that farmers can make a viable and compelling living again? And um, we humans, the, the rest of us, can have nourishing food. And, and it's all produced in a way that helps the planet instead of on. You know, no one set out to, like, say, how do we degrade the soil? How do we... Right. It was, exactly. it's, every, it's not a malicious thing. Right. The story of dirt on your bookshelf there is basically one in which civilization over and over and over again accidentally ruined its soil and had to keep on moving. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, the um, that recipe worked as long as there was someone to move somewhere to move to. Right. And, and now we're kind of, you know, we're on our last Iowa. Right. We're. We've kind of uh, populated the places that make sense to uh, take advantage of the wealth of history in good organic matter and soil. And, and the good news is the pioneers like Gabe and many others have figured out, hey, it's not a, it's soil is only a depletable asset if you treat it that way. If, if you 
treat soil in a way that helps build it, there, you know, we don't have to move anywhere. So, uh, you know, let Elon Musk go to Mars, uh, awesome place, maybe to vacation, but you know, we, we can, we can, uh, we can heal soil here. We don't need to keep doing what we've been doing for 10,000 years. And I think, like you said, there's, um, or lack of a better term, but almost we've built compounded ignorance into our system Yeah, because we we've made choices over the time ignorant, not in, that's not a derogatory term. It's just that we're not aware of the science or aware of the facts in the production system. Okay. Right. And, and we kind of build upon a uh, bad with a little bit more and, and, and we've just kind of taken this divergent turn and, and don't even realize we're doing it. And, and the nice right. part is, is that now all of a sudden people realize, Oh, we are. So, so there's enough information out there now and soil house been in the farm magazines enough that you know that there's something out there. I mean, if you can fog a mirror, you know there's something going on. So you have a choice to make. And that choice is keep doing what you've always done and expecting different results or expecting to 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 heal and improve or, you know, make a change. And I think it's it's every year that goes by, it's becoming more and more audacious for us to ignore uh, the consequences of our, you know, compounded actions from the past. So I, I think there's hope in the fact that uh, the awareness is increasing. Uh, farmers at the end of the day want to do the right thing. They just we don't always know what the right thing is. And we've been told the wrong thing so many times, right? So that's uh, that's always a challenge. So, but to back up in your story a little bit, coming from Shell, you know, yeah. really Shell at the time you joined them thought, probably thought of themselves as a oil, natural gas um, refining yep. company, right? Yep. But in your 30-year time frame there, they mm-hmm. discovered that they were not an oil company, didn't they? They discovered they're an energy company. Yeah, it kind what of that cultural shift, like within a behemoth organization like that, because like you said, you're going into tech innovation businesses and looking at right. it. I'm sure you were seeing all kinds of Brown's gash machines and you were seeing, you know, um, uh, fuel cells and just yep. all sorts of weird stuff. And uh, Shell had an interest in that because they knew that was all part of the energy equation. So what was that like for them to make that transition from energy or from oil to energy and how would that relate to us as farmers making it from crop farmers to mm. maybe a bigger idea of we're not just growing crops, but we're ecosystem service providers and all these other things, yeah, yeah. land stewards. Okay. So I'll, I'll open that up for you and then it'll be. What a, what a great question. Um, you know, my answer, um, uh, you know, let me just kind of think out loud here and, and say that first off, uh, such transitions are way longer than anyone thinks they are. So before I had even come on board, Shell had invested in a nuclear energy company called General Atomics on the belief um, that the energy system was going to change in its lifetime, just from a a, a raw capability perspective. Um, Midway uh, through that journey, Shell had invested in actually uh, about the time I was getting involved in technology venturing. Um, had uh, gotten involved in solar manufacturing um, and wind project development. Um, and um, on, on, you know, the belief that the energy system would change, but this was like mid nineties and so on. But frankly, at the time I left and it, you know, in my role in those later years, my remit included investing in everything from solar to wind to biofuels to nuclear to anything you can possibly imagine to carbon sequestration even. In fact, that's what allowed me to see this regenerative thing when it came along, because all this stuff you're reading about now, like carbon capture and sequestration and uh, reutilization, um, we had invested in all that stuff. So I kind of had a front row seat to um, a lot of that stuff. And yet um, I found um, at the time I left after 30 years, the shell was still struggling with it because what it understood best was a hole in the ground and a pipe hooked to it <laughs> and a tank. Cause that's just kind of what it knew it was in its DNA. And um, it had, you know, armies of engineers and managers and, you know, procurement specialists and all this stuff was organized around, you know, get, getting a, a lease to land uh, on some corner of the planet and figuring out how to drill a hole in the ground and suck a little out and turn it into jet fuel and gasoline and, ship it off. So it was really kind of being trapped um, 
in your own core competency uh, business. And it wasn't for lack of trying. Indeed, it was in the uh, late 90s. My very first um, alternative energy project was indeed a fuel cell project. You mentioned it um, that, that we were investing in. And um, and, 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 and yet I would, what I found was um, every time Shell picked up a different type of nail, it tried to hit it with the same kind of hammer. <laughs> Um, and then, and then it woke up and goes, well, okay, um, it doesn't really work to manage a solar panel company like it does an oil field, um, and they're not very good at it. So um, Shell had exited most of the businesses it had entered with good intent, not out of maliciousness. There's just really a conspiracy to like, you know, hide the things that work. It's really out of... Um, accidental ineptitude, if I can call it that, for lack of a better word. Um, it, it's being good at the wrong things. It's being good at other things that is the biggest barrier to getting good at new things, if you will. And, and for my little catbird seed is being kind of, you know, the guy running this game changer program here that was, you know, my, my remit was to start the crazy stuff, you know, to take the stuff. We were really good at getting things started, but what I saw happen in time and time again was as things come out the other end of the funnel, everyone would try to make them look like an oil field. Um, and so really struggled. And um, honestly, the transition of Shell to a uh, energy company is still ongoing, but it, it it takes courageous leadership. The new CEO of Shell, Ben Van Burden is the guy's name, has, has really stepped up and said, no, um, you know, we really have to be very, very serious about this. So this is after I left. Um, I, I honestly didn't have high hopes for Shell at the time I left, but after I left, they've they've uh, gotten big time into a whole range of uh, things, uh, and and this time I think in an appropriate um, ways for uh, things. They're thinking uh, more entrepreneurially. They're working with entrepreneurs. Um, uh, they're not trying to run electric car charging companies like oil fields. Um, they're, they're running them like entrepreneurial electric car charging companies. And, you know, and, and yet still, I think it's a long shot. I think um, as a student of innovation, um, when the world changes, the incumbents are paradoxically at a disadvantage. It's the, it's the upstarts and the heretics and the pioneers um, that, that uh, although they don't have the resources, they're not tied down to the paradigms and processes of the past. And most of them don't work, you know, 90% plus 99% will fail, but a few succeed. And it's out of those few uh, that the seeds of a new way of, you know, doing whatever you're talking about comes. And so I think that applies because I kind of was so plugged into that in a big energy company, I was plugged into people in every industry. And I don't think there's any industry that works differently than that. They all work the same and agriculture is no different. Um, we're all, the hardest thing to break is a paradigm. Um, <clears throat> it's it's not a plow and it's not anything else. We can reinvent mechanical equipment. Uh, we can do science on chemistry, but it's the way we think about things that that becomes um, uh, the barrier. And learning how to see the world differently, um, uh, how to understand things um, differently, and that's what allows you to come up with new ways of, of, of farming. So pick your favorite. I'm sure you have some money that tell you, uh, you, you know, everybody's got their story here of, you know, the world changed for me when I, you know, woke up in the morning. I think Gabe would say things like, you know, I, I wake up trying to figure out how to help what wants to grow live instead of kill what doesn't, what, what wants to grow, right? So that's a paradigm, that's an example of a paradigm change. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I, uh, you know, I the, the, the trick here to me What's, what's really hard and is my innovation voice coming through now is <clears throat> you, you don't have to change by um, giving up cold turkey or betting the farm all in one thing all at once. The magic to change is taking small steps, experimenting, learning from those experiences. And then based on what works, you do more of it. And what doesn't work, you leave it behind. So, um, you know, may, maybe that's a little no-till, maybe it's a little cover cropping, maybe it's a little rotational grazing. Um, you know, maybe it's a soil amendment. Uh, maybe it's just taking soil samples for something other than getting your fertilizer recipe. <laughs> you know, I think you start with small things that feel like they're close, understandable, and low risk, and 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 then you kind of you know move your way into this. A lot from the outside, it looks like, uh, you know, somehow the world 
changed overnight, but it never happens that way. It happens because a lot of people have been experimenting with small changes along the road and, and then they, things fall into place at some point. So we're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. Well, I think you said a lot of important things there in, in regards to the shell story. And I think we need to be aware of that. It is, it is a perfect parallel to the uh, ag industry. And, yeah. You know, like you said, when, when you've got a hammer is <laughs> your only yeah. tool, everything looks like a nail. So we got to realize that there's, there's more tools in our toolboxes. We got to look at focus on prospering life. And I agree a hundred percent. Joel, um, I, f- I forget his last name, futurist. I heard him many, many years ago. And he talked about, uh, paradigm shifts and when a paradigm does shift everybody starts back at zero and and like you said if anything large corporations are actually at a disadvantage because they have to retool re-envision and and even though they've got monstrous capital uh, it does no good when you're if it's like you're if you're a Titanic heading straight at the iceberg and can't turn, it doesn't matter. So it, does, it um, doesn't matter. That, it, uh, you know, if you're the speedboat that can turn and do a 180, you know, you might be small, but uh, you're you're alive and you're surviving and you're growing. So it's yep. interesting. Uh, and the other quote I love is that, uh, you know, like you were saying, you know, being good at old things helps hurts you in being yeah. good at new things. So. I think well, it, it a can, big it thing can, of really yeah. good farmers uh, that are professional yeah. and it's, it's yeah. tough to make that transition to a total new way of doing it because you're successful doing what you're doing. And that's why often, um, you know, it's people who, um, like myself, I feel like I'm not encumbered um, by, you know, some certain way of doing farming. I came in through the science of figuring out how to uh, grow carbon um, in, in soil. I tell people the thing for me or my past actually helped me see that is when someone first showed me soil samples under a regenerative farm and I looked at them and the quantity and distribution of organic matter in the soils was very much like what we in the oil and gas industry would call a source rock. Uh, a source rock is the organic rich sediment that once it's buried deep into the earth, cooked under time, temperature and pressure exactly, uh, turns into oil and gas. And I looked at that and go, oh my gosh, these farmers, they're just rebuilding source rocks. They're doing exactly what nature has done for millions and millions of years, but they're doing it by working with the same forces of nature that put that kind of carbon there in the first place again, um, as opposed to you know, the, the, the long um, and sad history that Dr. Montgomery documented in Dirt, right? Which is unwittingly, we effectively mined the soil organic matter with civilization for 10,000 years. And it all went back up into the air again or down the river into the into the rivers, streams, and oceans. So, um, yeah, you know, sometimes and, and other people will have something else that they see and recognize that they come in through some sort of different paradigm uh, or perspective in this thing. And I think sometimes those things help illuminate, uh, you know, new opportunities. Meanwhile, it's the, it's the actual um, pioneers uh, that are the farmers. They're the ones that are out there waking up in the morning, trying to figure out how to make their farms work better in a way that improves soil health. That's where the magic, that's, that's where the magic happens. And I think there's decades of innovation up ahead. It'll be a transition where, you know, I, I hope that just like our energy system, I, I honestly have high confidence that our energy system is undergoing a major change. I, I think farming is undergoing a major change, but it's just, you know, a decade or two behind in the pace and it's going to take us a while, but you know, no one should, no one should, get their expectation up that somehow we're going to all see the light um, all at once and change farming overnight. Um, It's a long, arduous process. It contains many people trying many things and fighting many challenges and out the other end, once all the success happens, then you get a a new system, the new paradigm and you're, you're um, in, in the new land. Well, I think one of the things you brought up about, you know, how people learn those things and, and get involved is you mentioned your attendance there at Grassfed Exchange, which yep. then led you into you got you got sucked in. Yeah, I got pulled in. Yeah, pulled in. You drank 
they they serve this pink Kool-Aid at the craft exchange, yeah. you know, and then and, and you're hooked. Uh, so probably a conference that if you have if you're listening to this and you haven't been to it, you need to go to it. You would by the name itself, you'd be like, what is that about? Mm-hmm. Um, probably pretty poorly named for what it is today. Uh, but it <laughs> the most probably the most comprehensive look at both the basic sciences and applied sciences of soil health, plant health, animal health, and human health, how that all integrates ecosystem services. It's a wide range of people from homestead people to multi-thousand cattle operations, uh, you know, pastured, uh, poultry and pork people come, um, you know, uh, sheep people come. And it's, it's an amazing collection of brilliant minds that come to this. So, you, you, you drank the Kool-Aid, you got sucked in that, you became a part of the grass-fed exchange team. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that and, and kind of what the effects have been of that organization over time. Yeah, well, I've just been honored and humbled to be a part of the grass-fed exchange. Like I said, I got pulled in by my friend Peter Bick to go to Bismarck in 2013. And in, in 2014, um, I I was just going to go back because I had so much fun, you know, just to participate. I just like, because as an innovator, um, an engineer is really an applied scientist. And what I saw in the grass-fed exchange was a bunch of applied scientific farmers. They're they're like farming engineers, if you will. They're innovating a way to do stuff. So instead of sitting around and talking about the science for its own sake or or talking about the theoretical whys or the justifications for what they're doing, they're just trying to get things to work, right? Um, if, you're, if you're an engineer, you want to get an engine running, you want to get a built bridge to stand up and not fall down, right? And these farmers are just focused on that how. And that's what, to me, was magical about the grass-fed exchange from the beginning. It was, yeah, we're not afraid of um, trying to understand the latest science, but primarily it's about regenerative practitioners coming together and showing and sharing what they're learning about how to make regeneration work on their operation, whether it's a beef operation or multi-species or doing other interesting hybrid um, combinations uh, of, of stuff. And indeed the, the name grass-fed is in our roots, um, but I, I think of it's more of an applied regenerative agriculture uh, event now. So um, I've, I've been chairman of the organization. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I just kept getting pulled in deeper and deeper uh, to the group and been chairman for a couple of years now. And it's, again, it's a humbling honor to to be a part of it as we've taken the grass-fit exchange um, what what was previously mostly a regional event and kind of we move it around the country uh, every year. Uh, a key part of the, uh, there's about, there's two days of the event that's kind of what you traditionally expect in your conference. And there's one day, which is all pasture walks or field tours. Um, and, and so getting around the country where we can uh, let this community see how things are done differently in different parts of the country and what kind of things people are um dealing with. And it, and it, it's just really, really powerful, you know, even if you're in Montana to, to, uh, you know, walk around white oak pastures in Georgia and learn a little bit something different from Will Harris, and you can go back to Montana and, you know, put your own spin on it. So um, started in Nebraska uh, with some real key pioneers here, Terry Gompert, many people might know Terry from the early days of regenerative agriculture. He was an extension specialist at the University of Nebraska that was um, highly revered as a, a, a pioneer, Wayne Rasmussen. Um, and then from, from that, you know, we've moved from events in Nebraska and the Dakotas to Missouri, Georgia, New York, Michigan, California. Um, this last year we were in Texas. Um, and it allows us to get out and see kind of that real how of what's going on in regeneration all around the country. And 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 to listen from the, um, you know, one one of the things we try to be as grassroots exchange is a place where people can, you know, learn from the edge, if you will, um, learn learn about what people are doing next, trying to push the boundaries even further. Rather, you know, we're not a place where you're going to come get the basics one on one of things. You're going to meet some amazing people that can share with you their own stories of doing that. But um, hopefully, you're going to hear stories that. Uh, are dealing with whatever the challenging issues are in the industry and that people are struggling with. So uh, this year, you know, common um, topics like, you know, how to, how to market uh, regenerative products to consumers, to soil carbon markets, to grazing for conservation objectives, 
to human health, like you mentioned, you're really trying to understand all these um, frontiers and edges. Um, and, and they're all related to, at the end of the day, I mean, this is a funny thing for this engineer from Omaha. I didn't mention I went to school in Ames, Iowa. So I was surrounded by ag and farm stuff. And I used to ridicule my my uh, uh, agronomy friends for going to so, taking blow off classes like soils uh, when I was taking thermodynamics. And what I've learned is I had it exactly backwards <laughs> is that soils are the most important part of the earth thermodynamic system out there. And farmers are the ones that are making it work. You owe them an apology, Russ. I do. I do. And I've, I've offered it to a, a few of them. Um, it, it's been fun. So my humble apologies to any who might be listening here. It turns yeah, out those those blow off thermodynamics courses. I mean, geez. Who... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now they can get back at me, right? Yeah, exactly. But it really, soil is this magical thing. It's the, here, here's a little factoid for you, Monty, that to help you appreciate just how powerful soil is. About 70% of the earth's surface is covered with water, uh, as people know. But about 70% of Earth's photosynthesis happens on land. And the reason that is, is because the soil kind of short circuits all the processes for connecting nutrients with photosynthesizing plants that want to grow. And so, so you know, life started in the ocean because there was plenty of water, but it's, it's worked its way on the land and it's the soil that makes it work. So this accumulation of organic matter, which is living biological life, in soil is really the key for how earth functions. It's really amazing to me. It's humbling uh, as someone who's been living on the bleeding edges of science for decades. I think it's something that my grandchildren will be learning about. There's, you know, it's so wondrous, if you will, a lot. It's really cool to pick up the newspaper and see the James Webb telescope show a picture of a distant galaxy from 13 billion years ago. But I think there's a a sense of wonder that I hope we can capture here with soil, which is like, there's amazing stuff going on down here. And, and we, we understand some of the big stuff, like, but we, we, we don't, and we've got a lot to learn uh, on how to make it work. And, and, and a far, yeah, to stay with the metaphor, the farmers are the astronauts, the ones that are doing it, right. You know, it's, it's not the scientists running uh, test plots at Iowa State University that are figuring this out. It's, it's the farmers. So one of the things you talked about that, uh, you know, this year at Grass-Fed Exchange, unfortunately, I was registered to go, but uh, farming interfered. Uh, I got <laughs> to get better at ordering my weather. Um, so <laughs> we, uh, uh, but you mentioned that that connection and really Grass-Fed Exchange became, uh, started as that how to graze, right? And graze yeah. efficiently, double the stocking rates, uh, improve regrowth and those kind of things. And Find now, the right animal genetics, other real practical right. things. Yeah. Yep. So over time though, it's evolved, like you said, into these, um, you know, nutrient density, um, yep. sequestration, um, you know, ecosystem diversity and right. all these other benefits. So now looking at ways to how do we monetize that? Okay. So do you yeah. monetize that through the products that you're selling that yeah. hey, we can get 50 cents a pound, dollar, two dollars, whatever it is yeah. to somebody who wants to vote with their dollars for right. a better product? Or is there a way for, you know, secondary carbon markets or, ecosystem services, those kind of things. But I think that's interesting and in how that uh, transitions into what you're doing today, right? With, with yep. Nest, And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things in, in the soil, if you look around and you find lots of earthworms, well, the goal isn't earthworms. The goal that tells you that a lot of things are going right. You've got good air water exchange. Yep. It's the, um, Correct. What do you want to call the the peak species of the soil? It's indicator species. Indicator yep. species. Yeah, it's it's yep. the king of the of the mountain. So yep. uh, same thing happens with uh, with birds on yep. prairies and those kind of things. And and talked about that interrelatedness of when you get you know the apex predators in a system that that's an indication everything else is in balance in the system. And plus that research that has shown that when you have an apex predator your biodiversity in the system below it is actually up to two to three times greater when you have that, that primary predator. Yeah. There's some really crazy. I'll let you take this away and I'll just <laughs> the rest of the half hour. And uh, yeah, Russ, you have a great day. No, yeah, be careful <laughs> what you wish for here. Cause there's some really crazy science. And I mean, you ask great questions, Monty, cause um, 
most of the people aren't asking this far out yet, but I do think the future of regeneration is how do we um, grow food in a way where we as apex predators um, manage a system that can produce more food, right? It's just, it's like this too good to be true perpetual motion machine. What, what do you mean? I get to eat my food and get more food to eat? Um, and, and it's not a perpetual motion machine. It's because what we're really doing is figuring out how to manage the ecosystems to capture more of that inbound solar energy. So I tell people I'm still in the energy business. It's just a biological solar energy business where the primary uptake isn't is, is from a plant, a blade of grass, um, a leaf on a tree, whatever the case may be, um, that that's uh, capturing that energy. And then, like I'm so deep in the science that I appreciate how much potential there is, but I also know how much uncertainty there is. And so like I'm involved in some, I, I've been involved in a number of projects here where we're out there measuring carbon uh, in soil, but I know how hard it is to measure it accurately. I also know how hard it is to communicate accurately. Um, and, and you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm like, how do we get to where we wanna be given where we're at and the viable options to it? And I think that, um, you know, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves too fast in trying to quantify things that are still uncertain as much as we can tap into the things that we can tell that are true. Um, I mean, you don't have to be a scientist at all to walk onto a regenerative farm and whether you dig into the soil and see the worms or you just notice the bees and the butterflies and the dragonflies or the birds, it's instantly recognizable. You're not on a typical Iowa uh, corner soybean farm if uh, you're in a place that's truly regenerative because life is there. Um, life itself makes the best judge in my book. And um, you, you really, it, it's very responsive. Birds in particular, you know, my Audubon friends like to say birds are the treasure in the measure. They're a legitimate goal in their own right, thus a treasure. But if you've got birds on your property and, and, and different kinds of birds, then you can um, be uh, assured that you're developing habitat in a carbon functioning ecosystem that's actually working. It's also true that, um, you know, here for, I, I, I'm just, I would be a terrible test marketer for anybody because I'm, my brain is just kind of wired in so many weird um, ways, but um, it's, it's hard to walk to somebody up on the street and say, you know, let me tell you about a ton of carbon. <laughs> like, well, what? You know, it's like only if it's bedtime and you really have insomnia problems, right? Do you well, they they back away slowly and back away slowly. Nine one one, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, birding is one of America's most popular pastimes. In fact, during the pandemic, it, it, a lot of people realized they could look out their window and learn to identify the birds at the feeder and. So birds are, um, uh, you know, a great indicator species, and they're very lovable. They're, um, um, uh, you know, re really they're they're the last um, surviving dinosaurs. So I keep saying we need to rebrand some things to engage more of kids. And everybody loves dinosaurs, right? But but you know, birds are amazing, and they're incredibly adaptive. And literally, I'm, I'm sure you see this on your farm. Um, when, when you're when you're farming right, the birds they're not going to land at your neighbors. They're going to come over here. Um, and depending on you know different species, maybe insectivores or they're they're eating seeds or they're eating worms, and they're going to respond to whatever it is you got going. So if you're counting and tracking something like birds, which there's enough of them to count, and and they're big enough to count um, in in that in that kind of system, you're getting a really good. Um, uh, index of ecosystem health. And so I quickly became a fan of what Audubon was cooking up for conservation ranching to take all this other complicated process of regenerative agriculture and kind of boil it down to saying, you know, let's do it for the birds. Let's, um, and I think the birds are a legitimate goal on the one hand, and they're an understandable uh, sign on the other, uh, kind of, you know, to systematize, if you will, the canary in the coal mine. You know, I think the some people like to say the metal arc is the canary of the prairie. And, and I think that's right. I, I, I think that when we graze and farm in a way that recreates uh, bird habitat, we're doing something right. And then we, maybe 20 years before we have a technological instrument that can measure that or quantify it or compare it or whatever. But, but I think you could, um, you, you can do a lot of good um, uh, by uh, farming of, for birds as, as a goal. And in fact, one of my um, 
favorite farmer rancher friends up in Northeast Iowa, so not far from you, uh, Phil Speck. I don't know if you know Phil. He just took his uh, ranch. He and his brother, uh, he was a beef producer. His brother's doing dairy. And um, they used to have a competition as to whose farm was more regenerative than the others based on how many bobolinks was the indicator species they were after, mm-hmm. uh, how many bobolinks they would um, uh, get on their land. And so Bill has now successfully transitioned his land into a, a, a trust funded by the state of Iowa that's land trust to make it so that by law now effectively his land has to be managed and grazed in a way that helps recreate bird habitat which i think is like the next level up from this stuff but it shows what's possible in the system in fact it was phil's work that inspired the naming of our um our, our beef stick with blue nest beef we call it bubble links um we thought it was a convenient co-option of the link concept with sausages yeah. uh, for the, but it was really the regenerative ag work of phil speck that inspired that 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 name in that system. So if we can do like Blue Nest is just trying to bridge that gap a little bit more. How do we bring an honestly regenerative product to more and more American consumers to get them engaged in this story? And what I want to be able to do is use that as a channel to pay farmers more for the product that uh, that are following these protocols that are healing the land as, uh, as opposed to the ones that inevitably end up with degraded soil and depopulated cities and all this, you know, scary stories of David Montgomery's book. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it, 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 at the end of the day, it'll be about this food system that, um, where we produce food in a way that makes the planet better than we found it. Um, and, and there's going to be thousands upon thousands of little layers of things inside of, um, that thing. And I do think we're going to find some of these things that are going to blow people's minds paradoxically, um, but I think this is how nature works. And, and the reason nature works this way is because it's figuring out how to capture, uh, more sunshine. And it does exactly what your question Im- implied here was, you know, eating food in a way that creates more food and, and to recognize that we as humans really are another type of apex predator in a system. And we can even either interact with our ecosystem in a way that takes advantage of the benefits of that process, or we can keep doing what we've been doing, which is just unwittingly damaging the ecosystem um, uh, out there. And so I, I think we're at that pivot point to, in history right now. Um, and, and that's really the kind of transition that's gonna be playing out. It has been playing out over the last 10 years or so, and it's gonna play out over the next 20 or 30. So we're really close located, uh, not very far from Dyersville, Iowa, where the Field of Dreams movie was. Oh, shown. cool. Yeah. Well, they and, play, uh, replayed the game this year, too. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, the the famous quote from there is, if you build it, build it, they will come, will come. And I think that's uh, what's going on with the bird species and the bird diversity. So yeah. it's not a quantity issue. It's a uh, diversity issue. So you, you need both when you're looking at these uh, supplementary, you know, uh, species on the pastures and on our land. So Audubon Society looks at that as, hey, these these farmers have built the field of dreams, if you will, for for yeah. birds. And, yeah. and it's done those things. So I, I had the joy of uh, one of our uh, neighbors here locally actually does a impression and speaking engagements as John James Audubon. Okay. Okay. So, He's, cool. he's got his dress. He's memorized uh, like uh, voiceover and, and everything and goes around the country portraying John James Audubon. So who I may have met him. him. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but there you I go. So who is better to have out to the farm than the, um, the, the living version of John James Audubon. Uh, he came out to our farm and there's a couple apps. In fact, uh, Kim, will put them in the show notes. I'll get those to her uh, where you can actually listen to, audio record on your iPhone and identify yeah. the, the birds that are there. So in a matter Amazing. of, he had, to, he had to go on to be, you know, John James Audubon's in high demand. He had to get to his next speaking engagement. So he was on the farm for about 45 minutes. We identified 43 different species. Wow. In a short awesome. amount of time. See, there you go. And he was super excited about a dick sissel. Yep. So I, I, I had not, I wasn't aware of that bird. You know, we had metal larks, uh, we had red tail hawks, uh, yep. bald eagles, all these other things too. So he, he was pretty excited to see some of the things we had going on out there. So I, I, I had him out specifically for this conversation, Russ, so I could be better 
better <laughs> informed awesome. about John James Auto. So I did the next best thing I could do is because John's no longer with us. I talked to, you know, Brian Ellis, who like Elvis impersonators for <laughs> bird geeks. Yeah. yeah I, I, <laughs> that's kind of a bad comparison. I've seen, some, <laughs> I've seen some really bad Elvis impersonators, but yeah, I think, yeah, awesome. you know, the society's onto something there because it's much like uh, pheasants forever or ducks unlimited. Yeah. yeah we've worked with pheasants forever. They did great stuff. Right. They, they understand that if we can work with farmers to, to do this in a better way, exactly. farmers control so much of the land yeah. that we're going to dramatically improve the habitat for the birds. Is, is that a, a way to totally, look? totally. And, and, and one of the things to really appreciate about birds, I mean, there must be, you know, I think there's 10,000 species of birds on the planet, but there's probably a million of, of wasps and bees and other things. I don't, I don't, really know, but there's enough diversity, as you pointed out in birds, different birds are responsive to different parts of your habitat. And there's this whole category of grassland birds that in one form or another require grassland space for breeding and habitat. Uh, Metalark is the most famous. When I started um, my project, right, as I was uh, leaving Shell to dig into some of the science stuff, we called it Project Metalark because I learned what to me was a really cool factoid that the metal arc has a preference to start its nest in the footprints of grazing animals. And so there's a, that's an interesting codependency. Um, but, you know, the bobolink, the dick sisal, these, uh, the grasshopper sparrow, they all have different little yeah, niches too. in there, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and um, when you're farming in a way that recreates that ecological richness of, you know, ancestral landscapes, then you're going to see different birds come back. Um, if, if you only have lots and lots of one species of bird, then indeed you're probably missing something. You're you've got some kind of monoculture thing going on and a type of food that's only attracted to one type. But if you're really doing something regenerative, you're, you're building layer upon layer of, of habitat and the birds are there because the seeds are there, because the worms are there, because the insects are there. Um, there's, there's seasonal uh, patterns uh, in, in such things. And to me, that's one of the, things that makes birds such a great indicator species is this kind of just this perfect size and diversity and population um, uh, to make them work. We've got a paper coming out of one of our research projects that's um, in the Southeast US. And um, I, I don't think it's out yet, but it may be out any day where we can document um, on um, five different pairs of ranches that there were 300% more of these grassland ob obligate species on the regenerative farms than on the conventional farms. Um, and in fact, it, it's, um, you know, some of these like pheasants forever, one of the things because you tie into uh, a hunting population that has an interest um, in, in that particular species, uh, got forwarded an email uh, from, from my friend, Peter Bick, who I mentioned earlier yesterday from one of the farmers that was in that study who didn't have many birds on her property when they started and it started incorporating some regenerative practices and she sent an email yesterday saying hey i we, i just heard my first quail and and and, and uh, there was a real honest sense of excitement and i i think that's boy i, I don't know whether in your neighborhood it's quail or pheasants or bobolinks or dixisles or metal larks but I, I i think if um if i think there's a huge opportunity to farm for farmers and ranchers to um you know, watch what the birds are telling them and, and listen um, when, when they show up. Um, I think it's a real magical tool. And meanwhile, you know, uh, in, in the future, there's some really cool things that uh, allow us to do all kinds of other stuff too. But gosh, if we do nothing more than uh, uh, count metal arcs, dick sisals, bobolinks, and <laughs> quail, we, we will have... Uh, uh, I guarantee you on uh, whether it's the farming fields of Mesopotamia or Georgia, uh, the bird populations of whatever birds were there were going down. If you start hearing more of them coming back, it's a sign you're moving in the right direction. So I had an opportunity for us to participate in the Thousand Farms initiative that oh, great. Jonathan Lundgren and Jonathan Lundgren, is doing good right friend. now. Yep. And um, so we we did two sample sites uh, on okay. our farm. One, one sample site was in uh, conventional soybean production. Okay. So on our soybean field, we're doing everything as regenerative as we possibly can at this moment in time. Yep. We have cover crops. Uh, they are, we had the cover crops were grazed multiple times on managed grazing, you know, daily moves. Uh, we we no-till planted them directly. We use no neonic insecticides. 
we used uh, no glyphosate. I mean, it as much as you can do in an agronomic system regeneratively, okay, compared to the soybeans adjacent to our field that were dicamba tolerant and till yeah. and, and neonic and all that. And th they were, they were just so happy. Uh, the entomologists, which, uh, you know, entomologists are a little quirky, right? That's yeah. Right. <laughs> Even um, more quirky than bird people, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but they're uh, awesome. Do entomologists and orth, orth, ornithologists, do they get mad at each other because one's eating the other? Yeah. Uh, I don't, and, I don't they think go into so, a coffee but... shop together and not get in a fight. <laughs> So anyway, uh, but, uh, you know, we are doing all these wonderful things and yes, we have a few more millipedes and crickets and all this fun stuff going on. But when you stand there in that field, it's still lifeless. So we go over to our perennial pasture at seven miles straight West yeah. where we've done grazing and both chicken, sheep and cattle. And it's just noisy. Right. I mean, it's just birds bugs it's just chaotic and the quantity and quality and diversity of, of bugs and stuff that's going yeah. on there it does make me wonder um are we really doing enough by looking at optimizing agronomic systems i, I think annual systems i think we're going to have to really take a hard look of how do we produce food in perennial systems if we really want to take a hard look at at carbon sequestration and impact and biodiversity impact and all the other things. There's no doubt in my mind that perennial permaculture systems have advantages over anything annual. I totally understand why we as humans uh, focused on annuals. It's easy. Uh, it, well, you, you're effectively trying to, uh, you know, the food, the part that we can eat of the plant is the the seed, right? So wheat, corn, soybean, all. And, and our monoculture, because that's all our harvesting technology allowed. It, it, it all is. our planting technology allowed. Yeah, but but in, in in an annual agriculture, basically by definition, you're restarting that ecosystem every year, right? You because it's you're starting from seed and you're getting to seed mm -hmm. um, um, in, in in that system. And so, um, you know, I I think trying to figure out how to reperennialize our agriculture indeed is kind of the big holy grail. Um, I think this is an a, a, an advantage out of the gate to people who integrate uh, and are involved with perennial pastures and grazing lands. Um, and and I you know I don't know whether it's seasonal grazing of annuals or people that are working with pasture cropping or people working with what I think are scientifically very um, novel technologies in perennialization of old annual things like uh, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with like Kernza is a yeah. Um, a form of uh, perennial wheat. Um, I, I I love this stuff. I, um, I you know now that stuff's available commercially, and uh, uh, I, I I buy that and I use that for making our homemade sourdough buns and uh, pancakes in this house to use kernza grain, and it adds wonderful flavor. But agronomically, it's probably going to take a while before it can really be competitive with other things. But if you're if you're developing perennial grains, then you can start developing multicultures. Uh, they not may not be really as diverse as a full pasture ecosystem, but they're moving in that direction. Um, you know, other people working with integrating uh, trees. I think the natural environment for many places um, is a savanna where you're integrating. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the other thing we did when we built big plows and combines, right? Take out all the trees and and, and hedgerows in a system and figuring out how to reintegrating other things that, that do form, you know, well as perennials like trees. So whether that's, you know, fruits and nuts, we do, um, it, it's not Audubon certified, but through Blue Nest, we offer the um, tree range chicken from the folks at uh, Regeneration Farms, mm -hmm. um, which is integrating poultry production systems in combination with hazelnuts and elderberries and, and other products in a way that's similarly cycling things in a natural ecosystem again. Uh, again, I I don't know what the magic combinations are, um, but I do believe that figuring out how to do more perennials and fewer annuals is uh, uh, gonna be a more regenerative system. There's probably, it's probably not gonna be an either or, um, but, um, you know, and I think, you know, part of it will be the science of people, you know, developing 
different things, but really it, I'd, I'd expect more of that innovation to come out of the practitioners, the farmers, they're just figuring out how to make these two things work together. Um, well, Russ, you know, like you're saying, uh, I, we could have been onto a term here today, reperennialization uh, being the next buzzword after regenerative. Now, if you think regenerative was hard enough to spell, <laughs> uh, reperennialization, uh, it's kind of like saying aluminum. Exactly. <laughs> be, Aluminium. That, that, that's a, that's, that, that could be the, the term of the day. So uh, talk to farmers who, who want to get higher value out of the, you know, maybe they're growing almonds in California and want to graze between them. Maybe they are uh, want to grow some small grains and, and graze uh, cover crops or do perennial crops. The Autobahn uh, certification, how does that work? And, 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 and what's that worth to them to, to do? Um, well, it's still early in that process. Audubon is now certified um, uh, three and a half million acres of uh, pasture land in the United States mm -hmm. under that program. So, but you've got 350 million acres uh, or, or more, excuse me, uh, uh, you've got 650 million acres of U.S. pasture land. So it's still a drop in the bucket. Uh, overall, uh, it's only available in 13 states right now. Um Unlike a lot of certification programs, um, Audubon, uh, it, it exists at no cost to the farmer, um, but it exists at full cost to Audubon. Um, so Audubon has to have staff. Every farm and ranch uh, has to have a uh, for-purpose written habitat management plan that is a part of that. They have to follow, as you might expect, certain protocols on animal welfare, environmental sustainability, forage and feeding practices, and um, so, so there's, um, you know, the kind of an integrated, uh, set of these things. It's mostly, uh, available in the central corridor of the United States, the former Great Plains states. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, they've growing rapidly now in California as well. So, um, uh, which is good, but there's a lot of states in between and the rest of the country where it's not available yet. They're in the process of expanding to other states. Um, and, uh, I, I look forward forward to that. So it's not broadly available. To, you can't do it in Illinois yet. I hope soon. Um, but that that requires uh, budget. What's in it for folks? I think right now the program is heavily anchored in people who are already on the regeneration um, journey themselves already. And one of the things we're trying to do here at, at Blue Nest and uh, other market partners, Corner Post Meats in Colorado, um, uh, Panorama Meats um, has recently become a part of uh, the Audubon family is figure out how to, um, you know, be market outlets for 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 folks. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think it's a worthy and honorable distinction in its own right, but to be able to pay more farmers more for their product is, is ultimately the objective. And of course, Blue Nest is really just dealing with the uh, um, on top of the Audubon protocols, uh, we only uh, uh, we're offering a, a premium product to people who are demanding a premium product. So then you got to have further um, things just right in your forage chain and animal genetics and all that kind of stuff. But we're working on other projects to develop broader markets at the wholesale level with um, uh, for for more Audubon certified ranchers and other. Uh, ranchers and and uh, you know again it's going to be a long journey to, to develop all this stuff there's um and audubon itself is just getting started um with messaging to the american consumer about um you know what the heck the certification means which is an important part of the process uh, you know we're a couple decades on from people appreciating the merit of dolphin safe tuna right um uh, and I think we've got another decade or two on bird-friendly beef to, uh, to to go there. So, you know, people shouldn't get their expectations up of, uh, you know, you know, big markets there, you know, right out of the gate. But that's why we're working so hard to try to develop markets that are substantial in size and 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 worthy. And but it, but it's hard. So it's it's not easy. You know, I'm. I, like I said, I came in through the science um, doorway and applying some entrepreneurial experience uh, to this equation, but there's a lot of people across the country doing amazing things and, and you know, who, who knows what the right recipe to make it work 
for folks um, are yet, but stay tuned. Long there road ahead. Well, if you don't try it, you're never going to learn. And uh, the great part is, is you're, you're building a following, a niche market, uh, and getting people what they want. And they're those people who are interested in their health and the ecosystem health. Uh, you guys check those boxes and, and give them an option to participate. So, yeah. One of the things we're trying to, with, um, you know, I mentioned these bubbling beef sticks um, here. You know, when I'm sh shipping a well-marbled ribeye frozen around the country, that's pretty complicated. Um, with a shelf-stable meat stick, say, uh, uh, preserved by way of natural fermentation, now I got something. I mean, I keep them in the console in my truck, and, you know, we ship them by uh, mail. And, you know, you don't have to be a chef in the kitchen to enjoy them. You can stick them in your backpack and take them on the trail. The price point is lower. And importantly, from a producer perspective, we don't need to have that well-marbled, grass-fed ribeye that goes into that. In fact, we started it by using the trimmings uh, from the rest of our production. And now we're buying for-purpose animals that don't have to meet those higher standards of quality uh, in order to be able to make those meat sticks. So hopefully that's not the end of the road, but it, but it, it, it's an example of how we're trying to, you know, use what we know how to do. My pop partners, Todd Churchill, Bill Godfrey, Alan Williams, trying to figure out uh, uh, Rick Mariner, Kira Dion, Josh Burns, and they're just every day trying to figure out how do we develop better markets um, for people that are using honestly regenerative product and get that product out to more American consumers. And so um, I'll, I'll do, I'm, I'm very, as an engineer, I'm just practical. I'll do whatever it takes to develop the bigger market that's viable to get more honest product from more farmers to more American consumers. And you know, bubble links are our next step, but it won't be our last. So um, we'll we'll keep working on that. Blue Nest uh, Frozen Meats was just a place to start. Very good. Anything else we should have discussed with our time here together today, Russ? Mm. That I that I made <laughs> out on. Hopefully, time I didn't flies scare. when you're having fun, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, oh my goodness. Uh, I, uh, I hope I didn't scare your listeners away. No, this is. I mean, I couldn't uh, believe. Uh, more deeply in the importance of what regenerative agriculture is all about. And I couldn't believe more deeply in the power of farmers to be the ones to make the difference. There's, there, there's kind of some wonderful justice in that, right? I mean, um, you know, being a kid from a farm state, even though I left to become an engineer, I've seen the, the demise of, um, uh, uh, farm economy over the last several decades and it's just painful to watch um and you know this is all it's broken from all kinds of angles right um co-opted and controlled um by people that um you know it, for my experience money is that very few people get up in the morning and and try to figure out how to make someone else's life miserable they do exist okay and so i'm not going to deny that but most people are just doing what they know how to do. You know, they they have their hammer and they see their nail and they try to make everything uh, fit that system. Um, and um, so there's a lot of things broken in agriculture. But at the end of the day, we're literally, you know, it's the farmers of America that are managing whatever they're managing, whether it's rangeland or cropland, they're, they're, they're the ones that are going to make the difference. They're the they're the heroes. Like I said, I, after going to grass-fed exchange in 2013, I was so inspired by all these folks that are just trying to figure out how to make it work. And in many cases, as I'm sure you have your own stories, people that are ridiculed by their colleagues and peers for, you know, being heretics or not being the same. Um, and yet they're, they're the ones that are um, driving things in, in new directions. And I, I think they're powerful. I, and I, I think we can restore bird habitat. We can produce healthy food. We can reduce human disease. We can reduce toxic load on our rivers and streams. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the farmers are the tip of the spear here. So um, I just hope I can play my little part here in my little corner of this thing and help help a little bit of that happen and, um, you know, move move the needles. So. Anyway, we certainly appreciate what you're doing. And then for the ag tech entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast today, always keep in mind that there's, there's ways to, you know, connect the right practices to the right people 
you know, Blue Nest is doing that in one way, but there's a thousand of ways that are just only really limited by our imagination. For farmers that are listening today, keep in mind that there's other higher value add things that you're doing that you need to do a better job of capturing that value of. And mm -hmm. you know, partnering with somebody like Blue Nest is a way to do that. And, and for the researchers and, and big thought leaders out there, you know, keep leading the charge, keep giving us the information and the practical things we need to do to to make these things happen because it is amazing when you're out in the field and you see that diversity you hear the life that is so abundant and uh that was only possible because of of how we're managing the land so yeah maybe one thing we didn't I, talk about in the yeah. tech you brought it up there Monty, is that um, as you can tell my background is all tech mm -hmm. um and um i i think we're going to see a paradigm shift in ag tech as well from tech that tries to replace what nature does or to control it or um, in, in some kind of way to, to tech that helps us understand and uh, work with natural ecosystems instead of fighting them. And no, I mean, no one invented fertilizer and weed control thinking, um, uh, you know, negatively, but they were because they were trying to control natural processes. I think the next generation of tech and agriculture, whether it's a widget that lights up or uh, some sort of biochemical or something else like that, that the tech that will work and is worthy is tech that uh, figures out how to help nature do what it already wants to do. And so there's some huge business opportunities out there, I think, for ag tech entrepreneurs that learn how to, you know, change their own paradigm mm -hmm. from uh, trying to control and fix nature to work with it. So uh, maybe yeah. a worthy closing thought. We just need to have them aiming at prospering life instead of aiming at making one more bushel. Yeah, so, it, 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 that, nice way to frame it too. Absolutely, it's a, <laughs> it, you know, I um, in the innovation space, I used to give talks all the time, and I, I'd say the corollary to you get what you measure is be careful what you measure because you just might get it. And when it comes to yield and agriculture, it's a great example of that. You know, when you measure what's measurable, um, then you're going to get that, but you're not going to get the other stuff if you're not paying attention to it. And so I. I remain deeply involved in measuring, you know, pursuing better ways to measure all these other wonderful attributes of regenerative agriculture. And I think tech can play a really important uh, role there, but um, I'm cautious about things that I'm going to measure until I know they're actually in align with what I want. And that's where this stuff like biodiversity and bird populations, I'm very confident that um, if, if we farm in a way that restores bird habitat, that we're going to get better farms. Um, and, and so we'll start there and then we'll fill in the gaps with other thing, things later. It really is a, a different way of thinking. I think it's a brilliant way of thinking. So Russ, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate you sharing with us and what you guys are really pioneering there. And uh, I'm sure there'll be several others that come along in a similar space to keep telling that story better and better. And um, it's going to be exciting to watch that develop. Awesome, Monty. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. Bye. What a great conversation that gets us really excited, not only about what is currently happening, but what is on the horizon for improving soil and human health. Isn't it amazing all the pieces and people that are working together to build such a great legacy? And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.